It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the context is to know the gospel, to know the gospel, to know the gospel, but to refuse to believe it, to renounce it and walk away. It makes God very angry. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue Tom's series in Romans chapter 1, titled, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. You find in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, a sobering look at the way man rejects God's general revelation. Man's first response to general revelation is hard-hearted rebellion against the one true God. Today, Tom continues our study by unpacking the natural consequences of man's rebellion, consequences that lead to flawed thinking, a darkened mind, and self-confident foolishness. The outcome of those consequences is a profound darkness that indeed permeates the soul of every unbeliever. And yet, there's hope for that darkness. It is the light of the gospel. God sent the light of Jesus Christ. And as you'll hear, He is the only light that can expel the darkness in the human soul. Tom Pennington opens God's Word right now, here on The Word Unleashed. Here's wrath. It is the settled opposition of God's nature against evil. His holy displeasure against sinners and the punishment he justly meets out to them on account of their sins. Now notice what's in that definition. First of all, it makes it clear that this isn't something foreign to God. This is part of his nature. This is part of who he is. And it is not the sort of blow-up anger that humans struggle with. It is instead a settled disposition, a settled opposition in the nature of God against evil, and not just against evil generically, but against people who practice evil so that he moves to punish that evil. That's God's wrath. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, defines wrath this way, it is God's resolute action in punishing sin. Charles Hodge defines it as God's determination to punish sin. So then, wrath is the divine reaction against evil. But let me ask you this question. What makes God angry? You say, well, sin. Good answer, but let's get a little more specific. Specifically, what provokes God's wrath? We can summarize the teaching of Scripture and what Paul teaches in the first two chapters of Romans by saying that there are three responses to God that make God angry, that provoke His wrath. Let's look at them. These are very important. First of all, God gets angry when we refuse to properly honor His person. Think about it for a moment. God is the creator. He made all things. We are merely the creatures of his hands. He breathed into us the breath of life. He gives us all things. The reason your heart is beating this moment is because God makes it beat. 
He's the one who has supplied you with the capacity to work and earn a living. Every good thing you have comes from God. And for you to take those good gifts from him and yet not to respect him, not to honor him, is the ultimate affront to God, and it makes him angry. Look at chapter 1, verse 21. Here's the heart of Paul's argument in this paragraph. He says of the pagans, even though they knew God, and we'll talk about how they knew God, obviously in the creation and what they knew about God. But he says, even though they knew God, they did not literally glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. There's the ultimate affront to God, to take his good gifts, to enjoy the life he's given you, and to despise his person, not to honor him as God not to be thankful for all the good things that he's given. And when human beings respond that way to God, it makes God angry. There's a second thing that makes God angry, and that is disobeying his will and his commands. Again, he is the moral governor of the universe. He has every right. The one who gives us all things has every right to tell us how to live. And he has issued commands. He has written them on the human heart, in every conscience. He has given us his law in writing, and it makes him angry when we disobey. Look down at verse 32 of chapter 1. Paul has just gone through a list of sins characterizing all of mankind, but especially pagans. And he says in verse 32, although, and here's something else they know, they know the ordinance of God. How? Because it's written on their hearts. The substance of God's law is written on the heart according to chapter 2. They also, many of them, have this scripture They know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. So they know that God says, don't do that. And they know that to do that is to invite God's judgment in their lives. But knowing all of that, notice they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There's something right off the front page of our newspaper. Listen, when we know God's will in his word, when we know the law of God written on the heart and we disregard it and we do what we want, it makes God angry. There's a third thing that makes God angry that may be a surprise to you. It makes God angry when we despise his holy love in the gospel. Look at chapter 2 of Romans, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is is urging you to repent, Paul says. And when sinners, and in the context, of course, of Romans, he's talking about repent and believe the gospel, the good news. And when sinners refuse to do that, what happens? It makes God very angry. Look at the next verse. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God says, listen, when you hear the gospel, when you hear of my holy love and kindness revealed in the gospel, and you know it, and week after week you walk out of church and say, yeah, yeah, yawn, let's go to lunch and you ignore that, and you ignore that, it makes God angry because you are trampling his gracious gift underfoot. In fact, keep your finger here, but turn back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, 
the warning passages in Hebrews are really about this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, there were Jewish people who had attached themselves to the church, who had heard the gospel of Christ, but who had not believed it. And to them, in in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, the writer puts it this way. He says, if we go on sinning willfully, willfully is the key word, to know the truth of the gospel and to say, I'm done with that. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the gospel, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. There's no other way but this way. Instead, for you, there is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume God's enemies. And then he uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, you remember that if somebody disregarded Moses' law, they died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses? How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And he's regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Here, not meaning he was a believer, but meaning he knew the truth and was set apart into that truth by his understanding of it and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then the writer of Hebrews ends this section with this sobering reminder. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the the context is to know the gospel, to know the gospel, to know the gospel, but to refuse to believe it, to renounce it and walk away. It makes God very angry. You have trampled underfoot his son. So understand, this is God's wrath. It is his just and righteous reaction against evil. And he can't help himself. It is who he is. So that's the definition of God's wrath. I want us to consider, secondly, the pervasiveness of God's wrath. You know, this is not an easy topic for me to teach on. It's not an easy topic for you to hear. It's not immediately warm and encouraging, although I hope by the time I'm done, you will be encouraged. But regardless of whether we like it or not, this theme is pervasive in God's revelation to us about himself. A.W. Pink notes that there are more references in Scripture to God's anger and wrath than there are to his love and tenderness. It permeates the Scripture. It permeates the Old Testament. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that in the Old Testament alone, there are more than 20 words used to describe the wrath of God. And the Old Testament uses those 20 words in their various forms more than 580 times. Let me just briefly walk you through the biblical record. I'm just going to touch a couple of highlights. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 3. This is where the wrath of God begins. The first display of God's wrath comes in response to the first sin. And don't forget, the first sin was eating a piece of fruit. God said, don't eat. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In response to that, God pronounced a curse on the serpent, a curse on the woman, and a curse on the earth. And he threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. Look at verse 24. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans that At that point, God subjected the entire creation to vanity, and it groans under the weight of God's curse, even to this day. But of course, the greatest evidence of God's wrath in the account of the fall was what? The sentence of death 
on every human being from Adam on. If you want to know whether or not God is serious about sin, if you want to know whether or not God is a God of wrath, look around you. Every person in this room will die if Jesus tarries. And the reason they will die is because thousands of years ago, God said they must in response to sin. It was his wrath. The next great and terrible expression of the wrath of God was the flood. (laughs) It always amazes me how many, how many, you know, have pictures of Noah's Ark and the little animals all over their nurseries and the kids' room. And I understand that. I mean, there's there's a part of that story I understand the reason for that. But here's what you won't see on the nursery walls. Look at chapter, look at chapter seven, chapter seven, verse 21. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry ground, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus God blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land. Listen, if you want to know whether or not God is a God of wrath, remember that he destroyed an entire world. Only eight people survived. Why? Look back at chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord said, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land. God's wrath expressed itself in the utter destruction of the twin cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Genesis 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Fast forward to the Exodus, Egypt. God destroyed the Egyptians. Psalm 78 says he sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger in Egypt. In wrath, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, went to the land of Israel, to the land of promise, God commanded them that they would completely annihilate all of the nations who had formerly lived there. Why? Look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am he and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. God says, listen, I have the right to say these people ought to die. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. This is what Ezra said in Ezra 8, verse 22. He said, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. That's just a sampling. Read the rest of the Old Testament and you will discover a constant record of God's wrath. God destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel with the Assyrians. He destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah with the Babylonians. He destroyed the entire city of Nineveh. You remember Jonah went and preached there. They repented. God relented. 
But a hundred years later, they were back into the same sins, a different generation of people back into the same sins. And this time, through the prophet Nahum, God says, it's done. I'm going to destroy the city. In fact, turn to Nahum chapter 1. Here we learn something else about God and this attribute, this aspect of God. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and literally a possessor of wrath. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Look at verse 6. You know, God is slow to anger, and we love that. But when God gets angry, verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Nobody stands up when God gets angry. So does all this mean that the liberals are right? That the God of the Old Testament is harsh and angry and cruel, but the God of the New Testament is loving and kind? Of course not. The Old Testament is filled with expressions of God's love and grace. And the New Testament is filled with expressions of God's wrath against sin. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, here's John the Baptist, the forerunner announcing the Messiah. What's his message? Matthew 3, 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John the Baptist was preaching a message of wrath. It's coming. You better run. You better run for refuge. So who's going to bring this wrath? Look at verse 12. The Messiah. He uses agricultural language, but notice he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. The Messiah will gather his wheat into his barn. In other words, those who are his own, he will, he will treat with care and tenderness. But he, the Messiah, will burn up the chaff, the unbelievers, with unquenchable fire. What I want you to see is that this is part of our God. This is who he is. He cannot look on sin without being moved to act and to punish. The reality of God's wrath against individual sinners is absolutely pervasive in the Scripture. Now, very briefly, how should you respond? How should you respond to the truth of God's wrath? Let's briefly consider the right response to God's wrath. Number one, run. Run from God's wrath to Christ. Look at chapter 5 of Romans I love this. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, that is by what Jesus accomplished in his death on the cross, we will be rescued from the wrath of God through him. Listen, your only hope, your only hope of surviving the coming wrath of God is to be found in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people here in North Texas who have storm cellars so that when or a place that they can hide from the tornado when it comes. Listen, there's only one place of safety in the universe when the storm of God's wrath unleashes, and it will, and that's to be found in Jesus Christ. It's the only safe place. 
That's the only deliverance from the eternal wrath of God that we all deserve. It's in Christ alone. That means, listen carefully, your response to Jesus Christ is absolutely crucial. Turn to John chapter 3. We love John 3, John 3, 16. But notice how John 3 ends, verse 36. There are only two possibilities. You are described by one of these. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe, that is, he who does not obey the Son, will not see life. But right now, the wrath of God is abiding on him, is remaining on him like a stain you can't get rid of, like a storm cloud above your head that will one day unleash in its full fury. I plead with you, if you're not in Christ... There is only one place of safety in the universe. You better run from the wrath of God and find your safety in Jesus Christ. If you're already in Christ, here's the wonderful news. You and I, we deserve God's wrath as well, the wrath that's coming upon all the people around us. But if we are in Christ, Paul says in Romans 5, 9, we will be rescued from God's wrath in him. It's an amazing reality. Packer writes, between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of the Lord Jesus. If we are Christ through faith, then we are justified through his cross and the wrath will never touch us, neither here nor hereafter. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, how does Jesus do that? Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 25. Here's how he does it. Because God publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation, as the satisfaction of his wrath. That's what that word means. In his blood received through faith. The reason you can be rescued from God's wrath is because that Jesus suffered in your place. He took God's wrath for you. And it's done. Satisfied. To believe in Christ, if you will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life and you will be rescued from God's wrath. But if you refuse to do that, your very refusal makes God more angry with you and you are storing up God's wrath, as Paul puts it, for the day of wrath when it will be unleashed. The early church father Ignatius wrote, either we must fear future wrath or love present grace one or the other. Now, for those of us who are in Christ already, there are a couple of responses I want to remind you of. Number one, fear God. Fear God. Our Lord said to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed the body, has authority to cast the soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, was Jesus saying that his disciples could lose their salvation and be thrown into hell? No. He was saying, you better take God very seriously. Don't trifle with God. Thirdly, second one for us who are in Christ, don't take your own revenge on the sins of others. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You don't need to get even with anybody. Wrath belongs to God. 
vengeance belongs to him. And if that person doesn't repent for the sins they've committed, all the sins, including the ones against you, there's payday someday. And number four, and this one is maybe a surprise to you. It was to me as I thought about it. Praise God for his wrath. Thank God that he's not apathetic and indifferent to evil that it matters to him, and that he has to act in justice and make it right. Listen, this is part of who God is. Be thankful that we have a God who is so morally pure, who is so pure in his person that he cannot tolerate evil. He's repulsed by it, and he has to act. Praise him for who he is. Praise him, not merely for those things that warm and fill your heart, but for those things that describe the fullness of his person. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will have part three for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? In his new book, A Biblical Case for Cessationism, Tom Pennington carefully considers seven primary arguments for the cessation of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. As a seasoned pastor and faithful expositor, Tom will help you consider what Scripture teaches about an issue that affects every aspect of the Christian experience, from your view of Scripture and philosophy of church ministry to your daily walk as a disciple of Christ and your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Purchase your copy of A Biblical Case for Cessationism today at thewordunleashed.org. That's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Mm-hmm.